You know, something that I've actually talked about on more than one occasion here is the fact that for more than half a decade now, I've been meeting um, the same four or five people for breakfast every single Monday morning. Um, uh, this is a picture of that group on a Christmas episode. of. Uh, we actually call this tradition Sitcom Monday. That's why I uh, refer to it as, as an episode. Because many great sitcoms uh, include a recurring set that kind of situates the cast around a table, whether that's like a diner um, or a, a coffee shop slash bakery is a classic setting. You also have a bar you know, that's a classic one as well, or a hamburger joint in some sitcoms. And we actually, you guys not recognize Saved by the Bell? Is that why no one's on? It's like, ha, 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 what? <laughs> Saved by the Bell, there it is, the max. And we founded this idea of Sitcom Monday uh, more than five years ago with the simple premise of this. Hey, wouldn't it be fun to hang out on Monday morning? <laughs> and that was it. And really, if you think about it, we could meet any number of places. We could meet in someone's living room. Those are all available. We could meet in a park or one of our offices. And sure, a diner, which is where we meet, is in many ways the logical choice, but it's actually much more than that. There is and has always been something about a table populated with food and with drink that seems to best facilitate the idea of communion. And when I say communion, I mean to commune with one another, the sharing of life. It's why the dinner table has always been kind of the hub, the main stage for our communities here at the church. Uh, when you find intimacy, when you find shared life, when you find communion, a table is never far and when I use that word communion, many of you kind of bisect it into two unique understandings of the word. There's communion, as in the way I've been talking about, you know, sharing of life, intimacy to commune with others. And then there's the whole cracker and juice thing that we do at church. That's also communion. But tonight, I'm going to argue that they are and have always been one and the same. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. All summer now, now that summer is finally coming to its end. Praise him. Thank you, Keanu. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Judge us all you want. Or, sorry, here's a version for you. Oh, now that summer's over, almost over. Um, we've been working our way through this ancient practice of eating and drinking. And what we've been learning together is that food is a really complicated, robust, dynamic topic. On the one hand, the dinner table is actually a powerful tool, if you know the story of the scriptures. In fact, the movement of Jesus itself went from what was a dinky minority, I mean dozens and then a few hundred people, in an empire of tens of millions of people, so clearly the minority, only to become a full-fledged movement that spanned the entire Roman Empire in a relatively short period of time, due largely to the fact that followers of Jesus opened their homes and ate with other people who were not yet following Jesus. That's really how the Christian movement began to spread. Food and drink are the kindling on which we light the fire of celebration, togetherness, familial intimacy. But we also know that food and drink are misused and abused, unhealthiness, drunkenness, obesity, obsession with appearance, expensive and narcissistic diet fads. We waste food while others starve. We contribute to environmental degradation and animal cruelty, all with simple food purchases and dinner decisions. But really, all that, even the evil tangled up in the way that we understand and utilize food, stems from something that's woven into the fabric of our humanity because we want the goodness and togetherness of food 
and the table and family and friends and, of course, God. And that's exactly what communion is all about. So tonight we're going to go to the scriptures, to the history of the church, take a look at ourselves and the way that we practice communion, allowing Jesus to shape and form and even correct and change us as we go. So with that in mind, let's read from Luke chapter 22. You guys ready? Yeah. Feeling all right? Thank, thank you. Thank, whose loud voice was I just hearing? Oh, Dave, was that you? This guy? <laughs> yeah. So I like it. It was helping me. Thank you very much, Dave. All right, let's read beginning with Luke 22, verse 19. And Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, his apprentices, saying, This bread is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him is going to betray me as with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They, the disciples, began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Well, from one conversation to the next, I guess. Jesus said to them, Listen, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, there's obviously a ton there, but the key line for us tonight is actually in the beginning, and it is a very familiar one. All the way back in verse 19, Jesus offers one of his most memorable quotes, and it's about communion. He says, do this in remembrance of me. But because many of us know the story, we know the context, we know Jesus is about to go to the cross to be executed, and we know that he says the bread and the cup are kind of like his body and his blood, we take the me part in this quote uh, to mean the sacrifice of Jesus. Remembrance of me, meaning Jesus' death on the cross. And that's part of the remembering, to be sure, but it's more than that. When we remember Jesus, we remember Jesus, all of him, his death, his resurrection, but his life as well, his words, the things that he did, the things that he taught, what he asks of us, his disciples, and why. And when Jesus says, do this, most of us take that to mean eat bread and drink juice. <laughs> Do this and remember me. But in context, Jesus is actually standing up during a meal with his friends. He's saying, do all this and remember me, meaning do this, life with other disciples, around a table, food and drink, and remember me, the person of Jesus. But actually, even that doesn't clear away all of our confusion and misconceptions about communion. See, in the Bible remembering of the kind that Jesus is referring doesn't refer to simply bringing something to intellectual awareness, as in, hey, remember that time, and then it flashes in your mind. No, to remember in this sense means more than conjuring up a memory of Jesus. It means doing this communion in what we call actualized awareness of Jesus. In his book, The Meal Jesus Gave Us, N.T. Wright says it this way, 
The hardest thing about the sacraments, which is something communion is, is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial, which goes back not just to Paul's language about the Lord's Supper, but to early Jewish thinking about Passover, another celebratory meal, does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering it. It refers in some way to bringing that past story and the divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes part of the story and receives the benefit from such actualization. Last week, we talked about the way the Lord's Supper, which is another name for communion, is something that's designed to remind us of the past, the present, and the future. If you missed it, go back and catch up on the podcast. It's really helpful for this practice. The idea is that we look backward in time to the life, the teachings, the words, the deeds, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, all that. We also look to the present. We examine ourselves in Paul's language. We look to the community around us with whom we share communion. We look to the future, a coming day when Jesus makes all things new. And this is about more than just remembering in the intellectual sense, as N.T. Wright was saying. And here's what I mean by that. So last week, uh, both of my kids had to go to the dentist, which is such a blast if, you're, if you know anything about that. And uh, all week long, I was trying to like prepare my son to get ready for the dentist. He had to go get like a surgical thing where he, he got what we call his robot teeth because uh, he's got like uh, silver caps on the back of his teeth. And so it wasn't a pleasant experience. And now he's horrified of the dentist. So I was trying to get him amped for it. I'm like, it's going to be easy. It's not going to be so hard. And I was trying to shift his attention to his younger sister so that he could be like the caregiver for her. So I was saying like, listen, remember, I want you to be brave. I want you to help your sister be brave. Remember, if she gets scared, hold her hand, tell her that everything's going to be okay. You can do this. And when I told him, remember, I'm not just asking him to like bring those things to his mind and let it stop there. I mean, remember as in actualized awareness. Take what I said in the past, bring it into the present, act on it, and affect reality as a result. So the idea is that in communion, we don't just remember Jesus in the intellectual sense, but that obviously begs the question, what exactly do we actualize when we remember Jesus and how? And the plan for the remainder of this teaching is to answer both those questions. We're going to do that by moving through a history of communion as well as setting up this week's practice in our communities. You guys still all right? Feeling sharp? Great. Let's keep cruising. All right, we're going to frame the next bit of work around the many names for this particular practice. There's actually six of them. Uh, Five of those come straight out of the scriptures from the New Testament and the other comes from church history. But in each name, there is a certain dimension of what we actually remember and actualize when we practice this. The first name, and for most of us the most common, is communion. Communion actually comes from the Greek word koinonia, and it's also translated into the English words community and fellowship and even the word participation. So, for example, check out this from 1 Corinthians 10. I believe, there it is, great. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, koinonia, or communion, with the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ because there's one loaf? We who are many are one body. We all share the one loaf. So some church traditions actually call it holy communion because in the scriptures, the word holy often means unique in all the world, meaning this type of communion. There's all sorts of different types of communion, but this one, this community, this participation is unique in all the world. It's not just an ordinary meal. And the reason is that this fellowship or participation is not just with people. It is, but it's actually with God himself as well. 
And that means that when we practice communion, one of the things that we actualize is the presence of Jesus at the table, meaning we remember and we become present to Jesus' closeness by his Spirit. We remember that Jesus is real, he's not imaginary. We remember that he's close, he's not far away, that he's in our midst, he's not just an idea to which we cling. Jesus is an actual, real person. He's not an idea or a warm fuzzy or something like that. So we give our attention to him as he gives his attention to us. And you can do that all sorts of ways by talking about Jesus. It's really easy. You can just actually think about him while you eat, holding him in your mind, talking about him, praying to him, all sorts of ways. But listen, it's not just that, and this is important, because that's not the only dimension of communion. We also fellowship with one another. We participate with one another. And remember, the Greek word for communion is actually the same exact word that we use for community. And the premise for this ancient practice has always been to enjoy the presence of Jesus with your friends and family, with your church, with your community. In communion, you're present to one another just as you're present to Jesus. Jesus is at the table, so to speak, and all around you is, at your, is your community. So you put the distractions away, you participate, you talk, you leave your phone at the door, all that stuff, fellowship, participation, communion. In his book on communion, David Fitch writes this. It's a long quote, but bear with me. This is great stuff. The Lord's table is about presence. Surely it is about eating, but ultimately it's a discipline that shapes a group of people to be present to God's presence in Christ around the table. Then, in the process, we're able to connect with the other people around the table. Here we have perhaps the single best opportunity to train ourselves to tend to His presence for our lives. If we can recognize His presence at work around the table, we will be able to recognize His work in our lives as well. Without such a discipline, however, we will always be tempted to take God's work into our own hands instead of recognizing His work, submitting to it, and participating in it. The table trains us to discern Christ's presence in all the other places we eat during the week. So the first name for this practice is communion. The second is the breaking of bread. This one we hear a lot less nowadays, but it's actually preferred by the New Testament author Luke. Uh, He writes this in Acts, for example. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, meaning this practice, and to prayer. Then later in Acts 20, he writes, on the first day of the week, we came together to take communion or to break bread. Now, if you have heard this term, or perhaps you read it in the New Testament, maybe you assumed it referred to simply kind of eating together with loved loved ones. We broke bread together, not specifically communion, the way we think of it. But in the New Testament, there's actually no difference between those two things. More on that in just a bit. Now, in the functional sense, it was called the breaking of bread because at the table, one would literally take a piece of bread, flat bread, kind of like our pita, and tear it apart with their bare hands. Of course, Jesus uses this visual symbolism to describe what would and did happen to his own body. It was broken apart. And in the same way that food gives life, Jesus' broken body gives life to his followers. So there's this kind of like twofold dimension of humble gratitude when you break bread. Food costs something, money, but I'm not just talking about money. Um, Plants and animals die so that we can eat. People have to work so that you can eat. Sacrifices get made. Time, emotional, all sorts of things. You guys have seen The Lion King, Circle of Life. It's the whole thing. So in the same way, Jesus died so that we can live. The ultimate sacrifice was made. And we remember this, actualizing that gratitude in the breaking 
of bread together. And that spirit of gratitude carries over into the next dimension of communion as well. The third name for this practice is the Eucharist. And it comes from this Greek word eucharistos, which is a word that means thanksgiving, believe it or not. This word actually shows up in all four Gospels when it is written, he took the bread, gave thanks, there's the word, and broke it and gave it to them. Very early on in the history of the church, this practice was actually called the Thanksgiving meal. And this is precisely why our Catholic brothers and sisters are careful not to say that we take communion. They always say we receive communion because this is a gift. You did not earn it. You do not deserve it, believe it or not. There's no American kind of capitalistic, I worked hard for everything that I have. This is a gift. And in this equation, you are the undeserving recipient And that should move you, not to a place of like guilt or like mournful unworthiness, I don't even deserve this, but to a place of celebration. I mean, compare it to Christmas. When a a child receives gifts on Christmas without earning them, they didn't, in most cases, shouldn't get them. Um, But when they get those gifts, do they get all somber? I don't even deserve this. At least mine don't, or I didn't, still don't now. No, they celebrate, and there's this catchphrase, you know, that we use all the time in Christendom. It's not bad, but we say, God is good, you know, it's used to the point of absolute meaningless. God, hey, isn't God good, y'all? Man, God is good. God is so good, y'all. And it's so familiar at this point that it means, I don't know why it's always Southern in my, (laughs) God is so good, y'all. But in my mind, I try to just say it differently so that it actually takes on significance. It's like, man, Jesus is kind. He's Uh, overwhelmingly generous. He is lovely to behold. He embodies everything that we admire innately deep down in our souls. Everything that we long for and crave is exemplified in Jesus, and he's ours, and we are his, and he gives himself to us of his own volition. He did not have to. He wants to know us and to be with us and to love us, and that is incredible. So far from like the somber observance, the Eucharist is a celebration of an undeserved yet gratefully received gift, just like Christmas. So over and against a world that's choking on its own entitlement, in the Eucharist, we sit back and recognize the most precious thing that we know has come by way of kindness, not prerogative. And that is a beautiful thing. And it gives way to celebration, which brings us to the next name for communion, The fourth is the agape feast. Now, agape is a word some of you, I'm sure, are already familiar with. It's one of few Greek words that we have for, does anyone know? Love, right, yeah. So, and this name for communion is perhaps least known today. People don't go around saying, a time for agape feast. But it was actually really common in the early church. It shows up once in the New Testament, and it's in a warning against false teachers from Jude 12, um, in which... It was written, these people are blemishes at your love feast, talking about communion, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. And this name was used quite a bit by the early church fathers as well. Every culture in the world, get this, every culture in the world, on down throughout human history, has utilized feasts to observe and commemorate noteworthy occasions. For us, you know, it's like birthday parties and wedding receptions and Christmas dinner, anniversary dates, so on, whatever it might be. And the fact that all cultures have always done this type of thing indicates that it's actually more than a learned tradition. It's more than just a cultural thing. There's something inside the human heart, an impulse, a craving, a deep-seated desire, that when something good happens, we feel like, man, we should be around people that we love. We should be at a table. We should be eating and drinking and celebrating together. 
And sure, there is a time and a place to be somber and to be quiet and to be introspective, all that for sure. But in the New Testament, all that is done prior to the feast. In Paul's language, he says, and I quote, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's not during the feast. At the feast, we are God's grateful, adopted, celebrating children. Philip Yancey puts it this way, This table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers and sisters alive. Heck, yes. Now, stay with me. Two more. The fifth name for this practice is the Lord's Supper. This language is also from 1 Corinthians in which it is written, So then, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper you eat? For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. That's Paul ticked off. So in the ancient world, dinner was like the headlining meals, the biggest meal of the day. Uh, It's actually similar to in the South. We actually called uh, lunch dinner. And what you guys called dinner, we called supper. And it drove Abby crazy. She could not stand it. I don't, it's just it's like, you'd think you'd adjust, but she didn't. And uh, uh, so on Sunday, dinner, meaning lunch, was a big deal. Like tons of food, sitting at the dining room table with the china instead of at the island, you know, in the kitchen. The china's out. You, you can't fit all the food on the table, really. It's a whole thing, every single Sunday lunch. And that's kind of like how uh, supper was in the ancient world, the dinner, what you guys think of a dinner. So Paul is highlighting what was already the most valued time of eating in the first century and saying, look, this isn't just supper. This is the Lord's Supper. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the idea of covenant meals. But for tonight, the idea is that The Lord's Supper, every single time you eat it, is a way that you recommit to the covenant. The idea that you have pledged to love and follow Jesus. That you have pledged to commit to life in community with one another, to serve and sacrifice for and submit to one another as you serve and sacrifice for and submit to your master, Jesus. One scholar puts it this way, When we eat and drink, we renew our covenant with God. We pledge ourselves to keep the covenant. Just as Israel voiced its willingness to obey the covenant, so we ratify the covenant in our life when we eat and drink. It is a moment of rededication and recommitment in the context of the worship experience. We voice our commitment to live worthy of the gospel. We vow to take up our cross Call Jesus Lord. Follow him into the world as obedient servants. The supper is the ritual moment when we renew the covenant vow we made in our baptism. It's beautiful. And understand that this commitment is not just to God. It's actually to one another as well. In the text we just read, that long thing about, shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul is rebuking a church who is making a mockery of communion, and his primary complaint is that they aren't caring for one another. 
The rich people are being indulgent. The poor people aren't getting anything to eat. And this was how the world operated in the first century, especially in Corinth. But not, Paul reminded them, this is not how the church of Jesus behaves. No, the Lord's Supper of all places was a venue for the rich and the poor, men and women, slaves, free people, to sit at the same table and share the same feast, all of them celebrating together, caring for one another, meeting one another's needs. And in this way, communion itself was actually designed to do the work of justice in the community of God. Think about the very first Lord's Supper, what we read from earlier about Jesus saying, the one who's greatest must become the servant. And in the first Lord's Supper story, Jesus, the king of the whole universe, gets down on the ground and washes his disciples' feet. The Lord's Supper enacts Jesus' kingdom vision of those with much who sacrifice for those with little. That's why Paul's so ticked that the Corinthians aren't caring for one another. Now, first century Corinth is not entirely like 2018 Vancouver, Washington. I get that. But even so, the same exact expectation is actually foundational to the practice of the Lord's Supper even today. You will eat together, you will know one another, you will be known by one another, you will care for one another, you will do justice for one another. I think of all the stories that I've heard in our communities over the last few years of people pitching in to meet one another's needs. You know, you guys bring meals to each other when someone has a new baby. You buy groceries for someone when they go through a difficult time. You show up at someone's house in the middle of the night to pray for them or to hold them when they're suffering or crying. David Fitch puts it like this. In this space, we submit all our divisions and personal agendas to Christ's presence. All of this must die. There we sit, tending to one another and to his presence. And an amazing social dynamic breaks forth that can only be described as a new political order subverting all other allegiance. Just as the first tables of the early Christians subverted Rome and Caesar and started a new way of life before the watching world, so this table subverts all other politics of American self-preservation, accumulation, and individualism. A profound flourishing in the kingdom results. Now, finally, the last name for this practice is the Mass. Now, this is a name from church history rather than the New Testament. It's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, the origin of this term is quite beautiful. When the way of Jesus began to spread, eventually spanning the entire Roman Empire, this practice was actually traditionally done with a liturgy, which is a kind of recited prayer spoken aloud by the community, everyone at once. And the liturgy, spoken in Latin, ended with this phrase, ite messiest, which is in English, go, you are sent out. And that word mise is where we get the word mission or missional. And so later, that entire term was shortened to simply mass or the mass. And this is how our Catholic brothers and sisters obviously continue to describe this practice to this day. Because in the mass, we remember that just as Jesus was broken and poured out, he has called his apprentices to die to themselves and to go out into the world, their neighborhoods, their workplaces and schools and cities for the sake of other people. It is a wonderfully appropriate way to end the meal. So there they are, the six names for this practice. Communion, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the love feast, the Lord's Supper, and the Mass. And notice that in each name and in each paradigm, the presupposition is that this practice itself is a meal. 
And this isn't just Josh's kooky theory. Uh, New Testament scholars and historians are actually unanimous on this. For hundreds of years, disciples observed communion as a full meal around a table, typically in someone's home, but there are exceptions to that. And you know, it's funny because occasionally I'll have a conversation with well-meaning disciples of Jesus, and I've been one of them, so it's not like a, you know, a blame-placing thing, who kind of get antsy when communion deviates from whatever the norm has been for them. So like, you know, if you have people, you're used to the cup and the cracker thing, and then you show up at a church where they're dipping <laughs> the bread in the cup. They're like, <gasps> dipping? You know, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, pump the brakes. Um, but really, if you think about it, when you do the whole cracker and grape juice thing, you're already not doing things exactly how they're depicted in the scriptures or, or, you know, how they were done by the earliest followers of Jesus or the historic church. And that's not all bad, really. There are reasons for that. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. But it does make you wonder, how did we get from a feast in a home to a tiny bite of a cracker and a tiny cup of grape juice in a sanctuary? So let me answer that with a question. When you think of your church, do you think of this? It's a dark picture, but that's us, by the way, if you can't recognize it. So you're in there somewhere, probably. Or when you think of your church, does it look more like this? Look at these guys. <laughs> yeah. And let me tell you, this was a really difficult thing. I sent out a text to everyone. I was like, does anyone have good pictures of our community? Mike's sending me pictures of people falling down and stuff, kids <laughs> crying. When you think about our church, does this, something like this, come to your mind? Or is it something more like this? Look at this guy. <laughs> just on a summer afternoon, hanging out in the backyard. The, it's interesting because the earliest visual depiction that we have of church is from the second century, and, and both Christian and non-Christian historians agree that it is a depiction of a church. And it's, um, it was discovered in the catacombs of Rome. It's called the Fractio Panis, and this is it. What do you see in the picture? A big group of people, both men and women, who are eating together at a table. In fact, the name Fractio Panis means the breaking of bread, the very first earliest depiction of disciples of Jesus hanging out together, having church. Now, that does not mean that this thing that we're doing right now, the gathering, isn't church. It is. It's a historically well-represented aspect, I would argue a crucial aspect of church. In fact, we would argue that to actually fully participate in this particular community, you commit to both the Sunday gathering and to a Van City community faithfully. And get this, there were actually big church gatherings from the very beginning. There were actually mega churches from the very beginning. The church in Jerusalem, for example, was some 5,000 people. But most of the time, the church was persecuted and consequently was kind of hidden away in home. So initially, the Lord's Supper was a full meal around a table in someone's home. And later, it was done kind of earlier in the day or in some cases at the end of a meal. But the meal was always a part of the equation. Eventually, though, the worship of Jesus was legalized. The church moved out of hiding and into the public square. Now church gatherings were being crowded into bigger arenas, um, retrofitted temples or buildings called basilicas. And now you've got 50 disciples of Jesus meeting all at one time, and then 100 disciples of Jesus, and then hundreds of disciples of Jesus all at once, which obviously isn't bad. There's a lot that's beautiful about that. But one can see why the meal was more or less discontinued. Um, it's really tough feeding a crowd. And I'm not just talking about finance. How many of you know how tough it is feeding a crowd from your community meals? You know, someone, you, you, Keanu, do you understand? <laughs> yeah. Um, our community, for example, listen to these dietary restrictions. We got two vegan adults. We got two vegan children, two vegetarian adults. 
a plant-based leaning adult or two, a few carnivores, and then on top of all that, there's everyone's personal preferences. And we actually do pretty good with the whole uh, meal thing, thanks largely to an app or something. As Vanessa in here, there's like a meal thing. You know what it is? What's that thing called for you? Perfect potluck, man. Check it out. There's a plug for, they didn't pay me anything. Um, We actually do pretty good with it. But raise the total of people from like a dozen to several dozen. And heck, you have little choice but to reduce the entire menu to just nachos and hot dogs. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, And... (laughs) Challenging, though it may be, we still eat, both in our communities and at the gatherings. It can be done. This is actually why we do food here, but we emphasize communities as the place to do life around a table, as it were. And it's not just the pragmatic piece that kind of moved communion out of the gatherings. There were pastoral reasons as well. Think back to Paul's letter to Corinth. From the very beginning, the first century, the earliest disciples of Jesus, there were abuses that began to permeate the Lord's Supper, and they were really hard to kind of wrangle and get under control. As the size of the church grew, the presence of abuse often grew proportionate to the sum of a congregation. It's just basic math, more people, more problems. Ain't that the way? And it's a long story we don't have time to unpack in full, but the long and short of it is that eventually the feast aspect of the communion was removed from now what we think, what, what we think of now when we think of like a church gathering altogether. And there was some pushback on this during the Protestant Reformation, but sadly not enough to balance things out. And by and large today we eat a little bite of a cracker and drink a little cup of juice. The bottom line is that today, very few disciples of Jesus actually even realize that communion was designed as a meal, as an entire meal around a table. And so we arrive at something of a crossroads. Now at Van City, we've taken some measures to recreate the practices of the early church, in particular the Lord's Supper. We eat together at our gatherings. That's one of the reasons. Um, even you know, in the summer, we do the whole meal. During the fall and winter, we do like a lot of snacks. Uh, We do dinner together in our communities. Uh, I think every single community every week does dinner or something like it. But obviously, when we do communion, we still have the tiny little bite of cracker, or if you're like me, you find the biggest one. You're like, yeah, substantive. Um, And then we have a little plastic cup. And again, it's not inherently bad, not at all. But at that point, it's kind of like a symbol of a symbol, you know? You're like, well, the cracker represents the bread, and the bread represents the body of Jesus. Okay, it's a whole thing. See, originally, communion was not actually a specific bite. Like, when you take this bite, that's communion. And it wasn't an isolated sip of juice. It wasn't even an isolated moment in particular. There was bread and there was drink, for sure. But there was lots of eating and drinking throughout an entire meal. And the whole thing was communion. And as we were developing this practice um, in this teaching series, both you know, here at Van City and together in collaboration with our friends at Bridgetown, we both realized that there was room to change. We at Van City realized that we are in the unique position to make both our gatherings and our communities more conducive to an actual practice of the Lord's Supper. So going forward, there's going to be two types of changes. The first is that this week, when you gather with your community, you'll head over to practicingtheway.org and you will learn to repurpose your weekly meal as communion. Now, don't freak out. It's way easier than it sounds and, and probably you're already doing most of it, quite frankly. Now, there's, and there's no specific rule book uh, to this thing. There's a few ideas to take with you. Some of them are in the practice. Here's another handful. Ordinarily, the idea is that you'll have someone host communion, meaning that they'll invite the community to a time of self-examination, take a couple of minutes to pray and to listen, make space to repent and reconcile if necessary. It doesn't have to be a heavy, long, somber thing. Sometimes it can be 
um, pretty efficient, do, you know, as, as needed. Then there's basically a prayer to begin the meal. I'm sure most of you do that already. You give thanks. You invite God's Spirit to be present and active in your time together. And then you eat with gratitude. You do your best to be awake to the fact that God is with you as you eat. You enjoy your food and your evening and your community. You'll plan to have some kind of bread and wine, or if you're like me, or teetotaler, you can do grape juice or whatever. And you give thanks. You eat. You drink. You remember Jesus. And then when you're done with the meal, you pray, give thanks again, worship if that's your thing, whatever. Maybe go around the table and do something like expressing something that you're grateful for or articulating something that God is doing in your life, whatever works for your community. And there's honestly a tremendous amount of room for creativity. The practices include an optional liturgy from the early church um, that is a writing specifically about communion and designed to lead communion. It's really beautiful. If that works for you guys, try that. So that's in our communities, and you ease your way into that going forward. You'll have time and space to figure out what works for you and try new things on. The other change will be here at the gathering. So beginning next week, we'll, move, we'll try to move further away from the isolated nibble and sip in a sequestered moment type of thing. And at the beginning of the night, the idea is that we will break actual bread, get, get that, and then at the end, we'll drink from the cup before we hang out and eat together. And in the coming months, we'll even, we're even planning to have a meal night together where we'll integrate the whole communion thing into our gathering, fully embracing the full scope of communion as a church. So let me say this to him. There are things about the early church, practices and routines from the first century and from first century culture that don't exactly translate to the modern world, and that's okay. But communion does translate. It's a, a feast of loving celebration with family and with God. And it is as beautiful today as it was in the first century for the earliest disciples of Jesus. And this isn't about simply going through with a routine. It's about much more than a tradition. It's about more than just following orders. All that is part of it, but it's more than that. This is about practicing the way of Jesus, about spiritual formation, about communion with one another and with God, life around a table and as a church. It's about remembering Jesus, in the words of Jesus himself. And this is, as this practice has been along the way, it is about eating and drinking, not just with one another, but with God himself. So let's pray before we take communion together.